Good morning. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra. This is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 19 October 2023. I'm going to finish um, Biomedical Portrait 4 today. So I better get going. This will be a number, well, CODA 4 C13B. Sorry for all the ridiculous um, nomenclature and numbering system, but at least it works for me. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about a couple of papers just to kind of finish the coda. A uh, paper was published way back in uh, the Molecular Cell Neuroscience, that journal, 2012 it was, so 11 years ago, talked about a human wild type 4 repeat tau. Remember, that's going to be called a, an R4 in our current nomenclature. And then a mutant tau polypeptide called tau P301L. They took these two uh, genes, the tau wild type and the tau P301L, put into a lentivirus vector and then injected it stereotaxically into a rat motor cortex. And they wanted to study tau modification subsequent to that delivery. Beyond that, that is the modification of the tau protein that was injected. <laughs> they looked at neuroinflammation and they looked at any other possible proteins that interacted. So, you know, the reason I'm doing this paper, because again, it's, it's another level of biochemistry that we like to get at. So the tau P301L is associated with higher levels of phosphorylation. So again, that's that's a switch of amino acids from P to L. So uh, it makes sense. And besides the phosphorylation that we talked about before, but including some of the ones in that previous paper, they were looking at 3 and 181 and serine 262. And they found that when uh, 3 and 181 and 262 were both phosphorylated, there was more tau aggregation. They also found that both forms of tau, you know, once the polypeptide is expressed, right, transcribed and translated from this lentivirus uh, vector, they found increased glycogen synthase kinase 3 and pololite kinase 2, that's PLAK2, levels. So what that means that they're referring to here is those two kinases may be at least partially responsible for the phosphorylation, we could call it now hyperphosphorylation, of the tau P301L, right, that mutation. Okay. So they saw increases in those two kinases, but they saw decreases in phosphatase activity. So there's a feedback regulation of the uh, contradictory uh, pathway. But they, and they looked at one more kinase, casein kinase 1, and it was not elevated or reduced after transformation with the human tau peptides, uh, with the genes for the tau peptides. So they also found no changes in the gliofibril acidic protein, what we talked about last time, with either the tau wild type or with that tau P301L. But both of those genes, when expressed, caused microglial changes 
with a higher interleukin-6. That's a very potent pro-inflammatory cytokine. Whenever you hear about IL-6, think about inflammation. And the other very potent one they found that went up was TNF-alpha. Okay. So the tau wild type and the tau P301L increase the levels of endogenous alpha-synuclein, but not the beta amyloid precursor protein, the A-beta, or TDP43, only synuclein, okay? So the levels of phosphorylated serine-129 alpha-synuclein which is the pathobiochemical biomarker, also increased with the tau wild type plus the tau uh, P301L. What they say is suggested back in 2012 was that regardless of which tau gene was expressed, the P301L or the wild type, both altered kinase activity, induced inflammation to the same degree result in tau modification and in alpha-synuclein phosphorylation, all of which are phenotypically um, coherent with disease. Okay. So they say the change in alpha-synuclein and tau uh, after tau gene transfer suggested back in 2012 the tau pathology will lead to alpha-synuclein pathology and that both combined will then enhance neurodegenerative disease. So I wanted to put that paper in there because it was a, so we were trying to stick with human uh, work, but this is the kind of thing you can do in um, mouse and uh, uh, even rat models, okay? Now, I wanted to end this with another paper published just recently. Again, this is a 2023 paper, and it was published in um, NMR in Biomedicine. Of course, I'll put it in the show notes. And they use magnetic resonance spectroscopic imaging, that's MRSI. And, of course, that technique, that type of spectroscopy, would be non-invasive. And that's what we're looking for in neurodegenerative diseases. Rather than going in and taking tissues, if there can be tools that can be non-invasive, that can detect some of the pathobiochemistry that goes on during the early stages of the disease in the patients, so no post-mortem work here, maybe we can get a better handle on the transitions of the various biochemical pathways and get an idea of where there might be that concatenation of sequence of events and then go retro from that and find the original concatenation that was a pathobiochemical uh, set point, you see? All right, so that's the idea of using NMR. So I think that's a pretty good reason to go that route. So then we're looking at neurometabolites that are linked to, of course, we're looking at various uh, neurodegenerative diseases. You know, the ones that we'll talk about, you've heard about many times, you see. So um, the method itself involves what, what this MRSI does, and I'm going to give you more detail than what they do in this paper. They rely on the inherent resonance of protons within a magnetic field. And as those protons precess and exchange energy 
with their surroundings. And the other surroundings would be other molecular structures, you see. So they use what's called a single voxel proton MRS. Now, this is where protons resonate at very discrete minor differential frequencies, depending on their local molecular environment. And that gives metabolites nearby an authentic, unique MRS fingerprint, which allows a number of neurometabolites with MRS visible protons to be directly quantified. Okay. So they can do this absolutely using phantoms of water scaling. That's a technique involving how you deal with the data that comes from the uh, experiment. Or they can do it relatively, comparing that is comparing with other neurometabolites. And the metabolite they like to use, at least in this particular paper, was creatine or combined creatine and phosphocreatine. Uh, and that would be um, then also total creatine. Okay, so why they use creatine, it's because of the, uh, because of the protons are particularly uh, labile to this uh, magnetic transference. And the reason you get that transference is because the protons in phosphocreatine and creatine are paramagnetic. More on that later. So they're, they're using, obviously, the nuclear overhauser effect of the no and the we. And that's how you achieve the contrast of the MRI, of the imaging. So what's NOE? It is a component of the magnetization transfer of magnetic resonance molecular imaging contrast generation. So the way this goes is they say that only a very small number of mobile molecules and molecules with protons present at high concentration, of course, that would be water, would even be visible on an MRI. And they call that in this technology the water pool. But they also say there are molecules, typically macromolecules and other uh, molecular structures like membranes, that are not visible, membrane lipids, of course, that are not visible. And that's because of either they're in low concentration or there's what, what occurs there is a short transverse, that's a T2, relaxation time interval. So they call that not the water pool, but the invisible pool in scare quotes, okay? So what they possess is distinct chemical shifts and they will be present or they must be present okay so that it's a modality thing there in categorical um description of the phenomena and or right um relative to the water okay so this is a really cool thing because they're they're allowing themselves to examine the magnetic environment and comparing it to the water pool. So the invisible pool now can be compared to the water pool. And the reason it was invisible before, because they couldn't get an image. 
So they possess distinct chemical shifts and or present in a different magnetic environment from each up from each other and from water. And they can be magnetically coupled to each other or to water. And the coupling then will follow two discrete mechanisms, which they know how to measure. Okay. So through a space dipolar induced cross relaxation, presumably intramolecularly, or a chemical rearrangement, which would involve an exchange. Okay. So you have a dipole moment induced effect that doesn't involve a physical movement between two distinct magnetic environments. While the chemical rearrangement obviously would. Right? So all of these MT methods will employ what's called an RF pulse. Okay? So what's an RF pulse? That's a radio frequency pulse. Okay. So when I was going through this, I had to, I had to learn all this material myself because I, you know, this nomenclature is new to me. And that, that radio frequency pulse is used to saturate. And what they're saying that means is to destroy the magnetization in one pool and an observation of the decrease in magnetization in the adjacent pool. That would be called magnetically coupled pool, obviously. So this MT effect, right, which is what they're going for here, will involve direct transfer between two pools or can consist of multiple transfers. And that would involve then both of those mechanisms I just described to you. So the contrast due to the presence and molecular integrity of the molecules involved with a short T2, that's a short transverse relaxation time, okay? were discovered back 20, 30 years ago. And only recently have they been used in clinical practice. This is called MT contrast. Okay. So now you're getting an idea of where this literature is going. Again, this was just published probably just a month ago or something. I think it's still in press. So they're saying that there are many molecules that have long relax T2 relaxation values, but they're not visible in the NMRI, in that imaging. And again, that's due to the low concentration. But in NMRI applications, the MT involving the dipolar-induced relaxation from the mobile molecules will be then what can be brought to the biological system, and that's referred to as the nuclear overhauser effect. Okay, and they're saying more precisely, it's called the relayed nuclear overhauser effect. And when they're looking at pure chemical rearrangements, they're simply just calling that chemical exchange saturation transfer or SEST. And they're saying that the advantage of these MT, this is a magnetization transfer, remember. MT means to transfer the magnetization from one pool to another, 
Okay. Saying the advantage of this technique that they're describing here is they can generate a contrast, which you're looking for in the image, that leads to information on the microstructural events, that's my word, at the molecular level. And that's going to be distinctive from the two relaxation times that usually take a difference from T1 and T2. Okay? So basically they're saying you can explore endogenous molecules without any injection of any exogenous substances. And that is really useful. That's the whole thing about doing this in the CNS in patients with uh, various kinds of dementias and degenerative diseases. Right? So that whole discussion of NOE in biology and the particular empty contrast that we're talking about came from a PNAS paper in 2020. And we're still, and we'll go back now, look at the 2023 paper. Some of that detail I just gave you was from a 2020 paper. So again, more about the Overhauser, okay? Because this is something I want to make sure we nail down. It's known as a dynamic nuclear polarization. So in any sample that you're looking at, you're going to have some paramagnetic interactions. And paramagnetic means a molecular structure that has weakly attractive, attractive poles to a magnet, but that there is no real or what they call solid or permanent magnetism. So paramagnetic means. And they can do this with molecules in solution. And that can be, for example, a biological sample even containing free radicals, such as uh, reactive oxygen. And those interactions will occur between the unpaired electrons, remember what the radical is, and the NMR, sensitive hydrogen nuclei, which of course are the protons, in the solvent water. So in the Overhauser effect, in an NMR experiment, you, you're detecting an NMR signal from the water protons. At the same time, the sample is irradiated with an E. PR frequency to excite the unpaired electron spins. Okay? That's electron paramagnetic resonance, EPR. And the result of the EPR radiation, it's going to be a different wavelength, obviously, will be a significant enhancement or indeed an amplification, this is the whole Overhauser effect, of the measured NMR signal relative to the signal obtained without the EPR radiation, okay, without that particular frequency, or if you want wavelength. So the Overhauser effect, again, dynamic nuclear polarization is a transfer of energy from a large electron magnetic moment to protons. Electrons from free radicals in that same sample will be continuously excited by a 60 megahertz RF field, radio frequency field. And in that way, protons will be polarized easier using a direct current magnetic field. Free precession frequency of those protons, therefore, will be observed directly after the radio frequency signal is switched off. Okay? So you get the idea of how this works. You're looking at field gradients um, 
that are associated with classical proton magnetic moments. Okay. So I think I understand that. So again, NMR involves the interaction with population of nuclear spins in a DC magnetic field with a radio frequency field in their precession frequency. And that frequency is given by V equals GE divided by 4 pi M times B. And the G is the nuclear G factor. And the nuclear G factor is a dimensionless factor associated with the nuclear magnetic moment. And so it contains the sign of the, of the nuclear magnetic moment. And that's, of course, significant to, to the structure because it provides information about which nucleon, and which would they be? They'd be either a proton, which is a positive charge, or a neutron, which has no charge. They could determine which of those nucleons, protons or neutrons, are dominating over the nuclear wave function. Okay? So uh, that makes sense to me. So it's, that's where the G is in that equation. The M, of course, is the mass of the proton. And so for hydrogen protons, the VB equals 4.26 megahertz per ki over kilo Gauss. And that allows you variations of several parts per million, depending on the local environment. And this is going to be measured by that chemical shift of uh, the proton. Okay. So. I hope that gives you enough detail. So, okay, what metabolites are we looking at in the 23 paper? Now, this is all for neuropsychiatric neurodegenerative diseases. They were looking at N-acetylaspartate. Why? First of all, N-acetylaspartate, we talked about it before in biochemistry, very abundant in the mitochondria and cytoplasm, and it's found in neurons and also in oligodendrocytes. Okay, it's an intermediary in amino acid degradation and in acetyl-CoA metabolism. And, of course, uh, the uh, N-acetylaspartate can help form OAA and acetyl-CoA. Now, you know uh, OAA and acetyl-CoA will then condense and make citric acid, so it's important for run the TCA cycle. N-acetylaspartate can also be, because of uh, transamination reactions, a reservoir for glutamate which, of course, is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So in this MRS, uh, in, in this MRS study, they thought about finding neuronal markers, and they think this N-acetylaspartate is a good one. It has um, the correct density. It's a simple molecule to measure, and it also gives you some information about mitochondrial involvement, which, of course, is very important. Another important molecule that there was myo-inositol. This was new and interesting to me. Let me check my time. Oh, yeah, we better hurry here. Because myo-inositol, of course, is this sugar that is, is found in phosphatidyl-inositol phosphates. Normally, we talk about uh, IP3, inositol-trisphosphate, as uh, mobilizing, for example, calcium reserves. And we talk about diacylglycerol coming after phospholipase C activity, generating IP3, as turning on protein kinase C. So you know what the IP3 pathway, we talked about it quite a bit. And remember I told you of many other ways to phosphorylate 
that inositol. You got six possible groups there, OH groups. So uh, depending on the ornamentation of the phosphate around the inositol, those are various signaling mediators in the cell. Remember, that's the whole phosphate inositol cascade. So uh, that's why they're looking at myo-inositol. Myo-inositol is found in astrocytes, obviously. Um, and so they're saying it could be a good marker for glial activation, which, of course, would then be coincidental with potential inflammatory response. Okay. Myo-inositol, of course, is in the level of PI, is a component of biomembranes, right? Vastalinositol, particularly in the plasma membrane, and in the whole secondary messenger uh, system. So we know that that's significant. Another one they looked at, I'll go real quickly here, was choline. Think about vastatylcholine, of course, and schwingomyelin, both of which carry choline. So they're looking at membrane turnover when they study choline and neurodegenerative diseases using NMR, this MRI pathway, M MRI technique, I mean. They looked at creatine. I told you why that was, because of the paramagnetic activity of the proton. Uh, and it also, it allows them to look at ATP indirectly, right, because of phosphocreatine. Look at glutathione, glutamate, glutamine, GABA, okay? So those are the basic uh, metabolites they wanted to examine. Uh, what did they find? Okay. Let me see how much time I got left here again. Sorry for this jumping around, but I want to make sure I can do something here with this. I think I can maybe get the data done. All right. So looking at two of those metabolites that we just talked about, N-acetyl aspartate and vasocreatine, they found that N-acetyl aspartate and N-acetyl aspartate in, re in relationship to creatine was lower in Alzheimer's disease than in mild cardio, uh, excuse me, not myocardial, mild cognitive impairment. So why are they comparing AD to MCI? Mild cognitive uh, impairment would be what? A prodromal neuropsychiatric condition, presumably. Okay. And they found that Myoinositol was higher in AD than in my mild um, cognitive impairment and higher in mild cognitive impairment than in controls. So that's interesting too. So you see higher levels, highest levels of free myoinositol in AD patients, less myoinositol, but still higher than control in the mild cognitive impaired people. So it could be that you're looking at continuum there or a gradient or continuum, okay? So they also looked at all those other, um, they, looked at, they looked at choline, they looked at glutamine, glutamic acid, glutathione, GABA, I told you all that. <clears throat> what did they find? They found that, um, well, Glutamate, glutamine, GABA, and glutathione are lower in all of the patient groups that included AD and MCI. So you found lower levels of the neurotransmitters, that would be glutamate and GABA, but also in glutamine, which could, of course, be an, uh, um, 
substrate for glutamic acid production, because glutamate can also be a substrate for GABA production. And they also found lower uh, GSH, which, of course, removes reactive oxygen. So that's sort of interesting. So you get the general idea of what they were able to find here. I wouldn't say there's anything particularly earth-shattering in any of this right now, but they looked at FTD, uh, frontal temperature measure, versus AD, and they saw a reduction in N-acetyl aspartate be, um, divided by creatine, that ratio, compared to controls. But they also found spatial differences in various posterior regions. So that's very curious, right? Because you're looking at, they were looking at the medial temporal lobe and the posterior cingulate cortex. So very, it's nice that they can do these various tissues. All of this, remember, totally non-invasive, okay? So they were all looking at, they also looking at the tau protein, determining whether that the tau protein had any differential effect. In, sim in symptomatic versus non-symptomatic carriers, uh, they did find in uh, the, the cortex, in, in one particular study at any rate, the, the posterior cingulate cortex, they did find higher levels of N-acetyl no, excuse me, lower levels of N-acetyl aspartate, okay? So, you know, that, that kind of, that tauopathy maps to the AD, right? I guess that's what I would say. They also found reduced GABA in the right inferior frontal gyrus, but not in the occipital lobe in patients with FTD. And they say that did correlate with behavioral measure of impulsivity, and that also correlated with this reduced N-acetyl aspartate and glutamate in the right prefrontal cortex, again in the FTD. 